So uh, my message, I'm just going to get right into it, and it goes like something like this. The world we live in today is full of uncertainty and compelling questions that sometimes may seem difficult to answer. Complex issues like political division, human rights, COVID-19 come to mind, but I'm not going to talk about any of those things. Instead, I want to talk about a question bigger than all of those. A foundational question whose lack of clarity will affect how you answer most all other questions that involve you. It's a question that King David asked in the Psalms. And we're going to get right into it, because Pastor Jose said I only have two hours to talk, so. Uh, he, uh, he knows there's no fear of that. So we're going to go right to Psalms 8. And we're going to start from verse 1. Now, we're going to, there's a question in here that David asks God. And you'll see the question, but we're going to read the whole psalm. You can't go into a book that only has nine verses and not read them all. All right? So we're going to read the whole thing, and you listen for the question. You'll see what it is. For the director of music, according to Giddith, which is a, like a musical uh, stringed instrument, a psalm of David, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angel and crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned them, I'm sorry. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we're going to go back to the question, which is in verse 3 and 4, and the question that David asks. He starts by making a statement. He says, when I consider your heavens, so he's looking up at the sky, the heavens, he's looking up at the sky and the stars and everything, the work of your fingers, he understands that God created all that. The moon and the stars which you have set in place, and here's his question, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. What a question. In, in all that God did, what are we that God would even consider us? There's a translation of the Bible. It's called the easy-to-read version, and it was written like in, in the late 80s, and I read that it's, it was supposedly written to clarify the Bible more for people who are deaf, which I really don't understand, because if you're deaf and you're reading it, isn't it the same as if you can hear and you're reading it? But anyway, but it is easy to read. It's really... It's really kind of, it's described as a, it's not a, it's not a direct translation, a word for word. It's not even a paraphrase. It's even, it's, it was described as more of like an interpretation. So I would never go to this and just read it and read it and say that's it. But it's kind of good side by side. Um, and this is what it says in the easy to read version. It is easy to read too. It's kind of good stuff. So here's what it says in verse 3. I look at the heavens you made with your hands. I see the moon and the stars you created. He's looking up and he's seeing it. He knows it's big. David knows it's big. But you know what? He had no idea. I'm going to assume, unless God gave him a revelation on how big it really was. 
the comparison that he makes of all that God made and us, why would you bother to think about us, becomes even more real when you understand all that God made. So I like numbers, all right? So bear with me a little bit. We're going we're gonna to go through a, little, a few numbers here. I'm going to give you a modern-day perspective of the scope of David's comparison in terms of today's understanding of the universe, all right? So just to start with, the Earth is 7,917 miles in diameter. 7,000, that's just a starting point. Our sun's diameter is 865,370 miles in diameter. Now you probably have seen the uh, pictures of the Earth next to the sun and how teeny tiny the Earth is next to the sun. The sun is huge compared to the Earth, and God made them both. But that ain't, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going to skip up to the diameter of the largest star that's known today. Its diameter is 1,740,000,000 miles in diameter. The sun is like 91 to 93 million miles from us, depends because we are on, a, on an, a, an axis that we're elliptical the way it revolves. Um, so, but at any given point, we're, we're only like one. 120th of that, the diameter of that, the distance from the earth to the sun. I've heard this said, I read this, it says, if you were, to give you an idea how big that is, this is how big our God is. And, and, and the Bible says he spans the universe with his hand. If you, were, if you were to have an idea, to give you an idea what it is, it says if you took a commercial airliner, I don't know why it has to be a commercial, it could be any plane, but you flew around at the surface of that sun, that star, at 560 miles per hour, constant, nonstop, you better hope they're serving more than peanuts, it would take 1,100 years to go around it once. That's how big it is. And that sun is one in, in several, let me get it right now, one in several hundred billion stars that make up our galaxy. And our galaxy is one of a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. God made it all. David says, what are we that you think about us? When you made all that. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. So the question, the second part of the question, verse 4 in the easy to read version says this. So he says, I look at the heavens you made with your hands. I see the moon and the stars you created. And I wonder, why are people so important to you? Why do you even think about them? Why do you care so much about humans? Why do you even notice them? You ever stop and think about that? Well, the other Sunday, Pastor Annette had said that when we read the Bible, we should make it personal. And that is so important to do that. You need to make it personal. The Bible was written to and for us all. But if you see yourself as just one in the crowd, you will never know how personal God wants to be with you. You see, God does more than love everyone equally. He loves each and every one of us totally. So it's kind of hard. I mean, you, we're trying to imagine the universe. That's hard. What's it like to imagine what God's like? 
that, that's a, a, a tall task. We, we do one of two things usually. We think as hard as we can to get as big as we can, to think about how mighty, how awesome, how powerful he is, and we can only go so far and we say, okay, he must be like that, and we fall so far short. Or we humanize him. We say, well, I think that, I think like this, so God probably thinks like me, so that's probably how he thinks, or I would do it this way, so God probably does it that way, and we drag him back to where we are because that's all we know. The Bible says now we know in part, but there's coming a day, there's coming a day when we'll be with him and we will see him face to face and we will know him. We will know him. So to be on a, to be on a, on a, 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 a trip here and to know in part is okay. It's okay as long as you keep, as long as you keep uh, marching. So, so a good example of, how, of this, of how we kind of bring God down to our level is, is how God loves everybody. You couldn't possibly picture what it would be like if you had to love an incredible number of people and think that that's going to be the same way that God does it. Even though God does love everybody, he loves everybody, he loves every single one of us as if we are the only ones he loves. That's why it's important to personalize this. Because when you read the Bible... If you read the Bible like it's a book of information, it, there's information in there. But it's not just information. It's information he wants to talk directly to you about. And if you don't think about this, if you don't understand it, if you think that he's a big God and we're just down here and he loves us all, he does, he loves us all, and we're all equal and we are all equal, but you don't understand how he looks at us as individuals and sees us and wants to be in a relationship with us as individuals, then you're missing it. Then you're just missing it. Um, so, uh, let's personalize the question that David asked God. From what is mankind that you are mindful of them, to who is mankind that you are mindful of them, to who am I that you are mindful of me? Which brings me to the title of my message, Who Am I? And it's not, who am I? That's not the question. The question is, who am I? But if you answer that question, you know who you are too. You know who you are in Christ, that's for sure. Um, who am I that, God, that the God of the universe would even think about me? Okay, let's talk about that. A few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with Pastor Jose, and he brought up the point, and I totally agree with this too, I guess you agree with a lot of things they say. If you wouldn't, you wouldn't be hanging around here, right? So, um, that if the word of God is going to be real to you, it's something that needs to be meditated on and eternalized. And what that means is, just what I said before, you, you need to, when you read the word, if it's not real to you, if it's not something that becomes alive in you, that he's speaking to you, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. You're still, you're still missing something. You're missing something of what, this is, this is kind of like, this is kind of like the Wizard of Oz says, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Anyway, you have, you have, uh, sorry, Tony, sorry. Um, so you need to, you need to think about it. You need to meditate on it. You need to make it real to you. It's not just information. It's life to you. It's life. All right. 
So I have, I have here a little object lesson. I like object lessons. They, they help us to, to see things. Um, and I work with wood. So I brought here a picture. And this picture is made entirely of wood. I didn't do it. No, no, I didn't do this. But if you look at this picture, this is how I see God sees us. All right? Each one of these pieces, now there is a little dye here and there, the shadows or a little bit of dye in some of this ash here. But other than that, everything is a different piece of wood. These are all different kinds of wood, natural colored wood. And that's how God sees us. He sees us as totally individual, totally, aren't these beautiful? He sees us as totally beautiful, totally unique, shaped, individual. These are all different kinds of wood. It's got a red oak frame. It's got walnut here. It's got ash on the top and the bottom here. There's coca bowl. There's, there's maple. There's black walnut there. There's woods. I don't even know what they are here. But that's how he sees us when he looks at us. He sees us as beautiful, beautiful, and individual. And he relates to us that way. Yeah. And then you see how it all fits together to make a picture? That's how he sees the church. When we're all in the right place, all fitting together, we make that. That's how he sees us today. Now, you want to see? This is how God looked at us, saw us, before Jesus came. All right, this is my own interpretation. Now, this is a piece of wood, just like that's wood. Now, there is some, some nicer wood inside this, if you were to to get into it, but for the most part, it ain't ever going to look like that. And what this is really good for is what it was shaped for is to burn. That's about it. That's what it's good for. Now, the thing God's so good, the thing I thought about, I came up with this object lesson. I'm thinking, was this really a good object lesson? And I thought, you know what? Jesus said what to the man when he was talking about judging? And he said, when you've got, someone's got a speck in their eye, he said, don't judge them. He said, when you've got a what in your own eye? And what is that log? Sin. And when God looked at us, when he looked down before Jesus, paid the price for us, that's what he saw, sin. He described it in a different way, too, in Isaiah. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We think we understand love, but what we understand about true love, God's kind of love, is a fraction of what it truly is. In today's language, the word love is so diluted, so misused. We use it for so many things. We use it for the things that we eat. I love pizza. We use it for the things we smell, if you're like my wife. It's like, oh, I got this new Christmas candle. It's, it's holly berry, uh, pine needle, cinnamon, whatever. And I love the way it smells. We, 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 we say how, the things that we wear. Oh, I saw that in the, in, on, the, on the catalog, and I just had to have it. I fell in love with it when I saw it. We say it about what we live in. Oh, I just love your house. We use that word for so many things in so many different ways, and it's basically not our fault. I'll let us all off the hook here. It's the English language's fault. Because we have basically one word, love. That's what we have. Other different languages have different words to describe it. The Greek language has seven or eight, I'm not sure, different words for love. So you can talk about a different kind of love. You don't have to love God the same way you love your smell of your candle at Christmas time. All right? So, but we have love. We're kind of stuck with it. So we use it for everything, but the, and that's fine and dandy, but we get 
trapped into thinking or let ourselves think that it all means the same thing and it waters everything down. In the Greek, the kind of love, and I'm sure you know this, that Jesus was, that God has, is agape. And agape is a always giving, a selfless, generous, faithful love. <clears throat> it's a love that puts others before themselves. It's a love that makes a decision. It makes a decision to love. You can't love without agape love unless you decide to do it. I want to give you what I think is a pretty accurate depiction of how we set out to love someone compared to how God does. Now, I'm going to use, like, marriage, like looking for a spouse, because that's kind of the easiest thing to relate to. You can't talk about how you love your children because you have a child, and they put it in your lap when it's born, and, and you're in love. You didn't have to work for that one. You know, what you do with it in the years to come, you're responsible for, so that's up to you to keep working on. But when we go to look for a spouse, how do we do it? Well, when we look for a spouse, somebody that we plan to be with the rest of our lives, here's how we do it. We try to find someone who looks the way we want them to look. Mm -hmm. um, who thinks the way we want them to think. Who acts the way we want them to act. Who reacts the way we want them to react. And on and on and on. And then, if we manage to find the right person who checks all the right boxes, then we say, we'll decide to love them. Well, this is what God did. Simply put, God went dumpster diving. That's what he did. He went dumpster diving. Now, that's not an excuse to look down on yourself. That's not an invitation to look down on yourself or to feel low self-esteem. If you do, you're still not seeing the picture correctly. You see, you are loved by the one who is love. You have an eternal value to God, not because of how you look, not because of what you do, not because of how you act, but simply because you are the recipient of true, unconditional love. We say, I'll love you if you fit into my parameters. God says, I love you without parameters. Some people say that love doesn't discriminate. But I would say it's more accurate to say that true love doesn't even discern. Because God's love for us is agape love. He does not consider whether we are or are not lovable. He just loves us unconditionally. If we went back to the seeking a spouse uh, scenario and you did it God's way, You'd walk out of here, and the first person you saw of the opposite sex, you'd say, you know what? I love you. I'm deciding to love you the rest of my life. Let's go get married, and you would love that person forever. I don't suggest you do it, but that's how God did it. He didn't say, he didn't go picking for things that he wanted. He just loves. He just loves. God sent Jesus to a world that was totally dark and to people who basically wouldn't know what God's love Love looked like if they tripped over it. But he sent him anyway. Amen. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8 says this. When we were utterly helpless, utterly helpless, couldn't do a thing to help ourselves do what? Get out of the mess we were in, the mess of sin, the, the uh, 
unrelationship that we had with the Lord. It's not the right way to say it, but, um, but you know what I mean. Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, the next two verses really show you the difference between human nature and God's nature. Verse 7 is the human nature part. It says, now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. That means if you're an upright guy and you do, or a girl, and you do things the right way and you're a good guy, I'm probably not dying for you. And it says this. It says, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Maybe, perhaps, someone might. This is God's nature. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You've got to think about what that means. And I don't want to get ahead of myself here. But we're getting close anyway to it. So if you think, you know what I thought about the other day? If you think about it, you know the guy's name, the guy who ran down those people in that Christmas parade and killed those six people and maimed all those other people. God loves him. Doesn't love or like or anything that he did, but he loves that person. Is that person lovable to us? He is to God. And thank God he is because that means we are too. Isaiah 64.6 says this. All of us have become like one who is unclean. That word, we have become that way because of sin. Because of Adam's sin, but you can't blame it on Adam because if he didn't do it, we'd have been right there doing it. And we've done it many times since then. So um, that word unclean is a word, when, when God says something's unclean, it means he can't be around it. He's, he's a perfect God. He can't be around unclean things. It's got, I, you know, I liken it to the, the prodigal son when he went out in sin and spent all the money and then was broke. He had to do something that was unclean to him. He had to feed pigs. And he wasn't supposed to have anything to do with pigs, but he had to because of the situation he was in. God chose to come down and be with unclean. Even when he really shouldn't have, he did anyway. All of our righteousness, all, I'm sorry, all of our righteous acts, it says in Isaiah. That means that's the best we can do. Our righteousness, that's, that's your shining stuff. That's what you can point out and say, that's me. I'm proud of that. It says it's like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like, the, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Our sins move us anywhere they want, it wants to move us to. And we just go there like a dead leaf will, if we allow it to. Now that, that turn, I have a log here. The Bible says filthy rags. I really won't get into what that actually is. It's not a greasy mechanics rag. I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm going to stay away from it. But it, if you have a strong concordance in a dictionary, you can look it up and you can see what it is. Yeah, yeah. But it's not. But it's nothing. It's nothing to to. Well, you'll see what it is. But it's. And I think I I, I understand a whole in my mind a whole other reason for that. 
but I'll stay away from that. But it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not something that God's going to be around. I know you want to say that because that even puts it in a bad light. But anyway, it's safe to say that no one leads by example more than God. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8 say, that, say this. This is, his, this is Paul's instruction to the Philippians. It's his instructions to us. You know, when Paul wrote some of the letters, he said, at the end, he said, take this letter and read it to the other churches, too. You know, it wasn't just for them. It wasn't like these Philippians, whoa, they need some, they need some talking to. It's for everybody. But it's for everybody personally. It says, do nothing from selfless or empty conceit, but with humility in mind of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Regard one another as more important than yourself. That's love. That is love. Do not merely look out at your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then it goes on to explain how God led by example. Have this attitude in yourselves, which, also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, the Bible says he was, he, he was with God and he was God. It says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing, to be, a thing to be held on to, a thing to cling to. He was up there, God in heaven, and said, it's okay, I'll let this go, and I'll go down there, and I'll do what I, what I don't want to do. There's many times, he, several times he referred to it, shameful, things like that, but he did it anyway because of love. It says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, that's a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I don't think it's possible for anyone to give up more than Jesus did, and he did it out of love for me. He did it out of love for you. <clears throat> so what should our response be to God in light of how he loves us? And by response, I mean at a time when things are not quite going our way. In the Bible, I can think of no better response than three young Hebrew men. And when the exile of, of Israel, when uh, the Babylonians had conquered them, and it was their own doing, they uh, didn't follow uh, what God had planned for God had for them. He warned them many times, and they got themselves into that mess. And they took them, and they took all the, the a lot of the uh, Israelites back to Babylon, and they the ones that they liked, they thought were, had uh, a purpose. They trained them in their own ways and tried to teach them. And there was uh, three, three um, young men. Uh, their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we're going to pick up the story here where Nebuchadnezzar decided to make this great golden idol. And he said, here's what's going to happen. When you come out and that golden idol's there and you hear the music and I want you to bow down to this idol. And here's where it comes, where there's, here's where our story picks up, when there was a few people uh, under Nebuchadnezzar who didn't like the Hebrew boys and uh, wanted to get him in trouble. And they said this to Nebuchadnezzar, but there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. 
They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage in order that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? This is their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. That's a good enough line right there. Imagine saying that. Someone says, oh, you, Christian, you do it. I don't need to defend myself before you. Verse 17 says, if, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. He is able and he will. That's what they said. But then they said this. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods nor worship the gold statue you have set up. Now, when I first read that, I'm like, well, that's just kind of strange. Even if he does it, we're not going to bow down. Yeah, because you're burned up. You're dead. But that's not what they mean. They mean even going into this, even if we know he's not going to, we're still not going to bow down. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't really know <clears throat> that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had any idea how much God loved them. Their response was, was basically... Even if God does not do for me, I will not turn my back on him. And that was probably based solely on the fact that he was their God. Not to minimize that, but how much more should we, knowing the unconditional love that God has for us, uh, always love, obey, and worship him in return? But sometimes our response to God is a question. What have you done for me lately? Or, or a statement, I'll do for you if you do for me first. God reaches out to us with unconditional love, but sometimes our response is nothing but conditional. When I started to write this message, I had a, uh, a verse. God gave me a verse. And I just started with that. And Pastor Jose asked me for an outline, which he needs to do because he needs to make sure that who's ever going to be up here in front of you because he has responsibility to you and to God that, um, that there's not going to be somebody up here who's saying something that's, that's uh, not truthful. But I told him, well, I'll give you what I got written so far, but I don't really have an outline because it's kind of like as God gives it to me, I kind of put it down. But um, I started writing this message, and I really didn't know where it was going to go. And I'll be honest with you. I've been going through some things in my life. Um, for a while in different areas, and it's been, it's been a struggle. And I prayed about it, um, a lot of those things, for a long time. Didn't really get uh, much of a, a response. Things didn't change in the ways I wanted them to change. And uh, in some areas, I kind of stopped praying. And I kind of just went with it, and I just, uh, you know, just kind of like stopped even talking to God about it. And that's not a good thing, because that kind of leads to a departure in relationship, 
and uh, I've kind of been in a, in a, in a, in a not a, a wonderful, close place with God uh, as of recently, but in writing this message, uh, I realized how much I had kind of stepped away from God because I perceived he wasn't there for me. And I asked him to forgive me, and let me tell you, asking God to forgive you is really kind of meaningless in a way. Because um, as, soon as, as soon as I said I heard, I heard my spirit, I've already forgiven you. But sometimes I think it's good for us to do it. I think it's good for us as like a, a touching point, a, a place that we do. And he led me immediately right to 1 Corinthians, I think it might be verse 5 where it says love, and when you read, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and you read every time it says love, or if you're reading New King James, it says charity, that is agape. Every single one of those words is agape. And it says love does not keep a record of wrongs. In Jesus Christ, he doesn't look down at us and see our failings. He sees where he's paid the price for those, and those don't even exist in his eyes. How does a God do that? How does he forget? How does he have a sea of forgetfulness? But he does. How does a God who has a, who has a memory that can't forget anything train himself to forget? That's love. So anyway, so this message really, I hope it blesses you, but it really has blessed me a lot in doing it. God is so good. He'll meet you where you're at, and he'll pick you up, and he'll set your feet on the ground again. The bottom line is you cannot base your understanding of what, of the, you cannot base your understanding that God loves you on your current circumstances and the amount of blessings that you believe you are currently receiving from him. If you do, then when you believe God is not blessing you, you will have to conclude that he doesn't love you. And that is never true. Establishing your mind and in your heart the truth of who God is and how he sees you and remind yourself of it continually. That is why we're here tonight. Our communion service is all about reminding ourselves how much God loves us and what he did for us. Three little points to consider. God, the creator of the universe, loves you individually more than anything you ever be able to find evidence of in this world. God has already blessed you with every spiritual blessing. That doesn't necessarily mean you have every physical blessing. The physical blessings are the minimal things. The spiritual blessings are the big ones. And a lot of times, physical blessings will come out of those. But if they don't, you still have the spiritual blessings. You have them. The Bible says he's given them to you. Know that you have them. Maybe you can't find them. Something I could picture in my house, I could say to my wife, where is my so-and-so? And she'll say, I gave it to you yesterday. I don't know what you did with it. God gave it to us. What are we doing with it? What did we do with it? And three, if you want evidence of God's love for you, there is only one place to look for it. 1 John 4, 9 says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. You can't look at it, any, for, you can't look for his love anyplace else. 
God sent Jesus. He did it because he loves you more than you could imagine. Hopefully, maybe you imagine a little bit more tonight than you've been lately, but you're still not imagining it enough and you never will. Keep trying. You have no concept of what God's love, true love is for you, that he was sent his son. I could say I love anybody. I'm not sending my son to die for anybody, I don't think. But he did. He did. And he's God. If I'm God and I know that if sin happens, I demand that a blood sacrifice is given, a perfect blood sacrifice, and then you sin, I'm God. I'm going to change the rules. That's it. Erase that. He didn't. He stuck with it. He sent his son. Knowing the extent of God's unconditional love for you does not make all your challenges in life magically disappear. However, if you couple this with the knowledge of last Sunday's message from Pastor Jose about planning, and he was talking about finances, but this goes a lot farther than just finances did. And previous to that, Pastor Ness message on knowing the provision that we have through Jesus Christ, then your challenges will be greatly diminished. But outside of all that, it should definitely bring you peace. And the importance of God's peace in the middle of life's battles cannot be underestimated. I'll close with this. By simply reading the Psalms, we see that King David was a deep thinker. Someone who pondered the things of God and searched for truth. As part of his search, he asked God a simple but life-altering question when you understand the answer. Allow me to ask the question again, but this time in my own words. God, when I take into consideration the entirety of the universe, everything that you created from the largest sun to the most um, detailed, smallest part of the smallest insect, who are people that you would even bother to think about us? We see no evidence of God answering David's question in that psalm. But today we know the answer is simply love. Not the watered down, abused version of love that we so casually use, but love by God's definition. All encompassing, never ending, ever reaching love that always places others before self. We know this because Jesus gave us the answer when he was explaining God's plan, <clears throat> plan one day to a man named Nicodemus. And John wrote it down in his gospel in the third chapter, in the 16th verse, and we say it all the time, but how much do we really, really know what it means? This is where you look for it. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you so much. He gave up so much for you didn't have to do it, but he did anyway. He is an awesome God. He is so selfless, so generous, and he loves each and every one of you like you're the only one that he has to love. Praise God. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here at Church of the Bridge today. I pray that you had a personal encounter with God, that he spoke to you powerfully, and that he met you at your place of need with this message. I also want to encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to our YouTube page. By doing so, you'll be able to check out past messages, 
uh, past events that we've done, you'll also be able to see what's happening now and those things that are to come. And lastly, I'd like to invite you to join with us in all that God is doing with your giving. Feel free to do so on our website. Again, thank you again for joining us, and I can't wait to connect with you next week.